Good morning again. We um, are joined together again to continue and pick up our study in Romans uh, from freedom to faith again. And as you recall, we've we've studied these first three chapters and looked at some of the foundations of what makes the Reformed faith the Reformed faith and what makes us um, call out to things like faith alone and grace alone and to God's glory alone. And we look at those as foundational understandings of the way that we see how God works and how God works not only in our redemption and salvation, but also how he deals with the world. And so uh, we'll open up even further this morning the idea of faith as Paul will point to Abram uh, or Abraham in, uh, as a great example of the faith. And we want to look at faith past, faith present, and faith future. And this will be part one of the next two or three Sundays that we dwell in this fourth chapter about what God is doing through faith. Um, So let's read together, if you would turn in your pew Bible to 941 and chapter 4 of Romans. We'll start with verses 1 and go through 17 this morning. Sorry, 15. Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writes... When then shall, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one whose works, his wages, are not counted as a gift, but his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is considered as righteousness. Just as David also speaks the blessing of the one in whom God counts righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. And whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he was circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abram, Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For it is the adherence to the law who are the heirs, I'm sorry, for it is the adherence of the law who are to be the heirs of faith, is not, and faith is null, and the promise is void. But the law brings wrath. But where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let me continue on just two more verses. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may 
rest on grace and be guaranteed to his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the ones who share the faith of Abraham, who is the father of all of us. As it is written, I will make you the father of many nations. Let's pray. Lord, long words and, and a long set of verses, but a one profound truth about faith. Oh God, you know my mind, you know my heart, and you know all of my weaknesses. I would ask, oh God, that you would use my weakness to provide yourself glory in the preaching of your word. May ears be open and hearts be receptive for your glory, O oh God. Amen. In the South, especially in Florida, you see it more often than Nebraska or in Kansas. See it some up here because there's a lot of water, but we call it the poolside shuffle. You can go to any club, you can go to any public pool, you can go to any private pool where there are little small children, where moms and dads begin to teach their children how to swim. And that first momentous jump into the pool where the child does the poolside shuffle of to the parent in the water of, come to me, Johnny, come to me, Susie. Just jump, I'll catch you. And that struggle of faith that those kids have in their parents that will you really? Are you sure I won't drown? Are you sure this isn't a trick? Are you sure that you're not going to step back and go, gotcha? But ultimately, in most cases, you see the child with great abandonment and sometimes even with a smile on their face throw their arms out into the air and leap towards their parent with great confidence that they will be caught and that they will not drown. That's what the Bible wants you and I to understand about what it means for us to have faith in our God. Paul turns to an illustration of what that faith looks like because without faith, there is no salvation. Without faith, there is no redemption. And without faith, there is no sanctification. And without faith, there is no paradise. Without faith, there is no eternal home but only eternal damnation. And so faith is a key. It is the Rosetta Stone, so to speak, to understand what it means to communicate and believe and follow where God leads. That's how essential faith is. And it's essential to the point you and I must understand faith is not wishing. Faith is not hoping but faith is relying. It's resting upon. It's reaching out and believing in the integrity of that which we place our faith in. All of us have faith in something. All of us have faith in gravity. All of us have faith in electricity these days. Many of us have faith in, in, in our cars or we have faith in our money. We have faith in our bank account. We all place our faith somewhere. But there's only one place that we can place our faith that assures us justification that leads us to sanctification, our holiness, our assurance of salvation, 
before the throne of God. And that's faith in God and His mercies. Without that faith in that quality of God, we are lost. And truly so. We talk about that a lot in, a, in this New Testament time of the church. We talk about it in, in our modern theology. We talk about it um, a lot in our circles. But it's not something new. And that's what Paul wants to say. He's gone through these three chapters. And you'll remember in 321, he makes this incredible statement about you can't. Well, he talked about in the first three chapters. You can't earn God's justification by your your goodness. You can't earn it by your morality. You can't earn it by your own religiosity. There's only one way that you can do it. And he says it in 321 with this very dramatic statement of, but now a righteousness of God has been manifest or revealed or made a revelation of apart from the law, apart from your works, apart from your morality. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to it, there's a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, those who of Paul's day were Jewish by heritage and Jewish by their faith had a lot of faith in their works and a lot of faith in their sacrificial system. But the majority of their faith was in their lineage, being children, biologically so, of Abraham. And so Paul says to them who would naturally have this question, well, what about then Abraham and our father Abraham and all the years of our Jewish faith? What, what was that about? And Paul says, even with Abraham, it was about faith. And so it's important that you and I understand what the Holy Spirit wants us to know about this thing called faith. Well, three things this morning in this first lesson that we want to go through on faith on past faith and present faith and future faith is this, that faith is a presumption of God and His fullness. Faith is a presumption on God and all of His fullness. Secondly, that faith is a genome. It is the, it is the genetic structure by which makes us, or what makes us, God's people. And then thirdly this morning, that faith is the emancipation or the freedom from all of our fears. Faith is the presumption of God and on God and of his fullness. Notice with me in verses 3 and 4 of this fourth chapter, this interesting uh, statement that, that uh, Paul makes. He says this about Abraham. We'll start with 2. For if Abraham was justified by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. Well, what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this word counted is actually a word that we can also say imputed. It's synonymous with the word imputed, which means it was gifted, it was given, it was placed on Abraham like it was in his bank account. If he had no uh, righteousness in his account at Key Bank, he would wake up one morning and by faith realize that he had a limited amount of financial resources in key bank, that someone alien to him had put it there as a gift. He had nothing to do with putting it there. He didn't work for it. He didn't earn it. He just believed that God would do that, and God did that. In other words, Abraham 
presumed upon God's nature. Abraham presumed about God that God was good, that God was merciful, that God is loving, and that God has a purpose, and that God has a plan, and that God is omniscient and omnipotent and omnipresent. And he saw these qualities about this God who confronted him way back in Genesis chapter 12, this wandering nomad, this pagan, this person who never even knew who God was. And yet God comes to him and says, come and follow me to a place I won't, I won't tell you right now, but I'll show you. And in the showing of you, as you exhibit your faith, I credit that faith to you as righteousness, and I will make you the most blessed man on earth by the method of that faith. And so Abraham believed God. What was it about God that he believed? He believed in the integrity of who God is. He believed in the integrity of all that God had revealed to him. And of course we know, looking back on the story, God didn't reveal everything about God to him. But that small amount that, God, that Abraham saw of God was enough for Abraham to see that God is a God who fulfills his promises. That God is a God who carries his people. That God is the God who will establish his people. What does that mean for you and I today as we sit in this pew? How do we begin to process that in our mind? Because Paul later here in these verses says he's not only the father of those who are of his heritage, but he's the father of all who would have the same faith. And don't you understand that's who you and I are today. We are the offspring of Abraham, not by genetics, not by, you know, uh, 23 and me, but by something much more established than bloodline. We are the children of Abraham spiritually so and eternally so by utilizing the same faith that Abraham did, which makes us his offspring. It makes us God's people. It makes us heirs to the promise that God made to Abraham that his people would be blessed. And so as you and I tremble in our circumstances or you and I are shaken in whatever comes into our life, we should immediately return to the object of our faith, our Lord, and understand with his integrity he's doing something in our lives that's for our good. It may be horrible from our perspective. It may look terrible. It may look hopeless. It may look just like the cross of Christ where the Messiah died and all gave up hope, and yet three days later was resurrected from the grave that all might live. It might be something that tragic in your life and in my life. But the integrity of God says this, He will make it right and good for our sake. And in believing that to be true about our God, we exhibit His righteousness within us. Oh, believer, you and I shouldn't walk around as fearful as we do. We shouldn't tremble as much as we tremble. We shouldn't fret as much as we fret. We shouldn't think that we won't be fed, that we won't be sheltered, that we won't be covered. 
that God won't do great things through us and in us. We should presume upon God. God is not miserly. God is not mean. God is not unkind. And most of all, you and I should recognize as His people that God is no longer angry at us. But that His anger was fully displayed on the cross of His Son. And it was fully received by the Son and fully dealt with by the Son and fully paid for by the Son. So that when Jesus cries out, it is finished. Our faith understands it is finished. This is the God on whom we are to presume. It's counterintuitive because it's not polite, is it, for us to presume one upon another. It's, it's especially uh, true when we just, you know, uh, take advantage maybe of our friends. We, what, is, what is the saying that um, familiarity breeds contempt? You know, sometimes we have a lot of family around and, and we see that contempt. That must have been really serious in some of your houses this past week. But that's not true with God. That's not true with your maker. That's not true with your creator. He beckons you the same way he came into Abraham's life in Haran. He comes into your life in East Glenville. And he says, come, let me take you to a land. Let me take you to a land of milk and honey. Let me take you to a land that is your land. Let me take you to places that you can't even imagine how glorious it will be. I know you're afraid. I know that you have questions. But God says to you and I, trust my integrity. Presume upon the nature of who I am. Look at how I've revealed myself over the millenniums. Even look at the pinnacle of my revelation to you people through my son Jesus on how much I love you and what worth you have to me that I would give you my son so that it would be a guarantee, as Hebrews 11 would say, of a land not made by the hands of men, but a city built by the hand of God. That is what God wants you and I to presume upon, that we are as people that are moving towards that land. That same faith was imputed as Abraham's righteousness, and our faith in Christ is the same imputation of righteousness that Abraham had, that you and I have even of this day. And so we have a surety. We have a promise, the same promise made to Abraham is the same promise that you and I have today. And the same way that God fulfilled it in Abraham, God will fulfill it for you and I as well. Because faith is that operating mechanism that imperfect people with all of their imperfections, just like Abraham was not perfect, Just as Abraham did not have all the law in his pocket, just as Abraham did not have a complete and full understanding of all of who God is and all of what God would do, he exhibited faith that God would do great things. 
Let me ask you that this morning. Do you really believe that? Do you believe God will do great things? Amen. He will do great things with you. He will do great things with me. And he will do great things with this church. But the qualification is is that we have to believe that he's going to do great things. We have to surrender our pettiness. We have to surrender our, our fears. We have to surrender our biting and our devouring. And we have to come to God in the same way Abraham did and said, Lord, take me where you will. Take this church where you will. Take us where you will. We will give you our faith. And that's important because faith not only presumption upon God and his fullness, but faith is also the genome by which makes us God's people. Look with me in verse 11 that we read this morning. He received a sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness, which was after he exhibited his faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. You see, that's, that's the genetic structure that makes us belong to God. When scientists finally discovered the, the genome, that the genes that made us who we are, the things that make us look like our parents, the thing that gives us blue eyes or brown hair or makes us 5 foot 11 or 2 foot 3, the things that make us who we are, that, that character, that nature that reveals as time goes by in our biological genes, the genome for us spiritually is faith. It's the one that makes us begin to look like the sun. It's the same faith that Abraham exhibited that God will use in the circumstances of our life as we get marked up and we get scathed up and we get scratched up as we walk through this world. All of those things that God is using to make us look exactly like his son Jesus. Where Paul will say later in the 8th chapter of this letter to the Roman Christians, God's using all things together for good. Because the whole outcome is this, that you should look like the image of the Son. And so that everything that's going on in your life and in my life right now, as those who are spiritually, genetically belonging to God, are beginning to reveal what we look like as Jesus. A couple of years ago when I first came, I used to make a little joke with you. Some of you liked it, some of you didn't. But it's really a good one. And it's about how we begin to look like our parents. And we can't help it. I I get in the mirror and I look and I go, my dad is appearing before me every day. And I'm not so happy about that. And I can't stop it though, I can't help it. Because I have his genes within me. I have a set of his genetic structure that makes me look the way I look and act the way I act and talk the way I talk. And that's what faith is in the Christian. It's what faith is in you. It's the same genetic structure. It's the DNA that makes us look like Jesus. And so that you truly can in the morning, and this was the bad joke, look in the mirror and go, oh, there's the image of deity. It really is true. 
no matter how much bedhead you have, no matter how wrinkled your face is, no matter how pretty your face is, when you look in that mirror by faith, you're understanding that within you is the incarnational dwelling of God the Holy Spirit who by faith is using everything about you and around you and in you to make you look like the Son. And that's where we get courage. That's where we get strength. That's where we get perseverance. That's where we get assurance. That's where we get boldness. That's where we get confidence. And that is where we get joy to move forward to say, God, you are working in me to make me look like Jesus. Hallelujah. Some of you are excited about that. And there's no other way for that to happen except through faith that God will make it happen. I wish that for some of you the gene would be so magnificent that you would be one of those who threw your arms out and said, God, whatever you want, whatever you will, I'm yours. And we would all be able to know because there would be a smile on your face like you've never had before. There would be a joy in your heart like you've never known before. There would be a confidence and a kindness about you that you've never exhibited to anyone ever before. For those who are believers, there would be a deep attraction. For those who are unbelievers, you might find them completely repelled by you. But you would have this assurity of knowing you're becoming like your dad. So we presume upon God in all of His fullness so that we can understand God's plan is to make us His people. Not just His people by some theological covenant, but truly and spiritually, genetically, His people. That there's something more deep in our connection to God than flesh. That's why there's not three sets of people, the pagan, the Jew, and the Gentile. But there's only God's people and not God's people. Because the only way that you and I can be God's people is by faith in the same God. And that faith doesn't come through our genetic structure. It doesn't come through our flesh. It doesn't come by our works. It doesn't come by any other means than faith in the grace and the mercy of the living God. It's the only way we get it. And because of that, we have no room to boast. Because of that, we're unable to think that we're superior one to another. And because of that, we walk in humility realizing that the same way it was credited as a gift to Abraham, it's credited as a gift to you and I. And if it's a gift, understand this, it won't be taken back. It is a gift that you can't earn. It's a gift that you can't keep. It is a gift that God has given and that God has secured by the sealing of your heart and the Holy Spirit that you and I are once and for all His. And if we are His, then the Scriptures tell us, then we are heirs. And if we are heirs, we are joint heirs 
with Christ. Because of one reason and one reason only, we are His people. In the same way that Abraham was His people. And that's exactly what Paul is saying in these verses. That faith is the emancipation from all of our fears of being orphans. That we're not some second class citizen in the kingdom of heaven. He says it here beginning in verse 12. He said he did this to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also those who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be the heir of the world did not come through the law, didn't come through works, it didn't come through circumcision, didn't come through his biological uh, genetical system, but it came through the righteousness of faith. For it, if it is of the adherents to the law who are being the heirs, then faith is null and nothing, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, where the law has been covered, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. And that promise is not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the sharers of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. You see what Paul is saying is that you are as much God's people as anyone has ever been God's people. And because of that, in the same way that the Hebrew children were uh, freed and emancipated out of the slavery in the mud pits of Egypt, you and I have been emancipated from the slavery in the mud pits of sin. And the better Moses came and the great Redeemer came, the very God Himself who we worship, And the second person, his son, came, the better Moses, and delivered us out of the worst Egypt, this worldly system, to take us to his promised land, the one which is the city built by the hands of God and not by the hands of men, so that you and I might know that there is nothing that can encumber us. There is nothing that can stop us. There is nothing that can keep us from being the co-heirs and joint heirs with Christ of that great city. That kind of faith frees us from fear. There's no reason for you and I to have an inappropriate fear of God. Certainly we have an awe and a respect for our Father because He is thrice holy. Certainly we should come into His presence with with trembling over the power of who He is. Most certainly we should be face down and on our knees because of His marvelous glory. But most certainly we should still come. Most certainly we should approach that throne of grace boldly to say, Father, Father. Paul will go on later in this letter to say we should even be so intimate as to call him Daddy. Do with me what you will so that your glory would be accomplished. I'm afraid of nothing except not following. You see, the same faith of the past is the same faith of the present. And it will be the faith 
that we exhibit in the future that God gives us, on all of the days of grace that God gives us here on this earth, that we continue to look back at the faith that was established in all of those places in our present where God has worked so that we know in the future that that same faith is not a faith in our works. It's not a faith in our ability. It's not a faith in what we do. It's a faith in who God is. It's in his integrity as our God. It's in his mercy and his everlasting love and his long-suffering and his kindness to his people. So that we're always assured we are his people. We'll talk about how that moves into works. But for now, understand this. Rely upon his integrity and live and function in the revelation of God's mercy towards you. You may wonder, what, what, what do we do with all of this? That's the first thing that you do. Rely upon God and his integrity with everything in your life. Even the stuff that you wouldn't normally take to God, take it to God and say, God is yours. It may be horrible stuff. It may be wicked thoughts. It may be bad actions. It may be uh, addictions. It may be all sorts of stuff. But take it to God and say, God, this is now yours. I trust your integrity to deal with it and to set me free. Then secondly, you should stop being identified as a slave and by slavery and start identifying yourself as children and heirs. You and I should be people who walk upon this earth as those who have the certainty of knowing that everything that belongs to Christ is ours. Not because we deserve it and not because we're proud and not because we did anything to buy it, but because of the amazing mercy of God and his kindness that says it's yours. What would it be like if we were to receive a a gift from someone, but it just sat on the shelf, never used? What would it say to that person who gave us the gift? If we were indifferent towards that gift, or we were afraid that we might break it, or we were afraid that somehow it wouldn't have the same meaning. I'm sure that person, if you've ever done that for someone, you understand that was a waste of my time, that was a waste of my money, that was a waste of my effort. And yet we have to understand what Christ did that this table represents is the gift that was given to you and I to assure us that we're heirs with him. And then finally, get a grip by letting go. Trust God to do great things in your life. Trust God that the burgers will be cooked even though it's raining. It's going to be okay. He's going to get us home before dark. As we come to this table, this table is a reminder of our faith in what God has done in the sacrifice of His Son. That as we partake in it, we eat and drink that which feeds us, sustains us, and remember the promise that is ours in Christ. Let's pray. Most holy God, we just ask You, Lord,